2: This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Evening everyone, Bruce Daisley here. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, your favourite podcast about happiness and work culture. We've identified the nine causes of unhappiness at work and we're setting out to solve them. I haven't, but that's what all good ads say. I should do that, shouldn't I? I should say, I've found the nine causes of unhappiness. I mean, let's even try and guess those now. So, idiot boss, number one. Meetings, number two. Hellish commutes. Half of all people who check email outside work show signs of high stress. So, that's got to be in there. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Since you've been last here, I've uh, I've spent some time doing the website. I mean, it's it's almost like decorating a spare room. It never has so long been spent on so little to be seen by so few. But anyway, the website now has got all of the episodes on there and you can sign up to our mailing list. So if you've got a pressing need to to receive more email, I'm the man. Here's the things that you can do that uh, you probably won't get around to, but you could rate and review us on the Apple Podcast Store. You could follow us on Twitter and you search for Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I do actually tweet out some articles and things I've enjoyed there. And you can listen to all the episodes on iTunes, on various podcast players. Anyway... After today, the next two episodes are specials and they're both inspirations about changing some aspect of your working life. So the first one is about changing your career. I've spoken to someone who quit his job right at the top of the record industry to set up a restaurant and then I've spoken to someone who quit his job as a trainer to write TV comedy and he's written the best comedy of the last five years. Someone who's helping people return to work after a break. The episode after that is... I mean, if I wanted to call it something clickbaity, that is, honey, I hacked my job. And that's people who've made small changes in their working lives to improve what work looks like. Some of them inspired by what they heard here. Some of them just taking their own initiative and thinking about how to reinvent their work. Let's go on to today's episode. Today's guest is someone whose CV is so amazing you can't help but be dazzled by it. Tony Schwartz is an author, a speaker, he's a journalist. He's written books that have sat right at the very top of the US bestsellers list. I'm talking to Tony today about his book, The Way We're Working Isn't Working. But I was reading, uh, I was listening to the audiobook version of Shattered, which is, you might have seen it, it's the book about the Hillary Clinton election campaign. I'm not going to lie, I was hoping it was one of those books that had a different ending to the film. My media consumption is pretty much totally dominated by podcasts and audiobooks about American politics. None of it has any likeness to it. Anyway, just to show what a legend Tony is, sure enough, towards the end of Shattered, he pops up. He's running a day's camp with Hillary as part of her debate prep. And look... Even though he couldn't save the election, Hillary definitely won the debate and got more votes than any white man in history. Let's not quibble. Tony's written a must-read book in The Way We're Working Isn't Working. It's this really strong, opinion-filled piece about how we're overworking. And actually, it really just confronts the fact that we don't talk about a lot of the issues at work. We just accept that people will put in extra meetings in our calendar. We accept the expectation that we can sit in a six-hour meeting and be expected to concentrate. Anyway, Tony's book is filled Filled with suggestions of how to improve upon the lives we're living it's a really dense work it's filled with stats it's filled with examples it's a very very usable guide to changing work so if you if you see reinventing culture starting with the individual then this is a really interesting thought piece. There's a lot of themes in there that we can use to improve our response to the pressures on us. Let's get into the chat I had with Tony. I kicked off looking for a label. So many people have said how this book has changed their life, but is it opinion? Is it self-help? How would he even describe it? I spoke to him on Skype.
1: I don't know what label to give uh, The Way We're Working isn't working. It's partly polemic. It's partly self-help. It's partly a look at the kinds of things that organizations are doing, the ones where we've worked. Our work at the Energy Project is a more integrated approach at this stage. We started by simply training individuals to better manage their own energy, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, to influence the way they feel regardless of what's going on around them. I don't believe that it is the sole responsibility of an individual to make work a place they wanna go and meaningful. But I do believe that it's a shared responsibility between organizations and individuals. You, you need some kind of value exchange that makes it worthwhile to both sides. I think that's really, historically, obviously, it hasn't favored individuals, it's favored organizations or companies, but it's even worse now because the level of intensity is so great that even in a organization with good intentions, the exhaustion that people are feeling tends to be very, very high.
2: One of the things that I particularly found of value in The Way We're Working Isn't Working is there's several concepts where I think anyone reading them would think, right, and know how I could take action on that. The, the one that I was interested in especially was the idea that, that our energy and our work pulses. These times where our energy sags and these times where our energy is at its peak. We need to sort of adapt around those. And the shift away from the focus on the amount of hours we're working. But maximizing the times that we're, f- we're feeling full of energy. How do you feel people you've shared that
1: with have adapted to it? Well, I think it's actually life-changing. It's an insight that when people have it and they instinctively know it's true, I mean, everybody knows if you put money in a bank and you start withdrawing it continuously, eventually you're going to go bankrupt. And it's no different with your own energy the problem is that we've patterned ourselves we've patterned our work lives and been encouraged to do so by the organizations we work for after our technology and you know machines operate at very high speeds and computers particularly continuously for long periods of time but human beings are designed to pulse the word you used and that we use, between spending energy and renewing energy. If you think about it, it's grounded in our own physiology, meaning we're meant to breathe in and breathe out. You don't live very long if you do one or the other and not both. Your brain is meant to wave between high-frequency electrical activity and low-frequency electrical activity, high-frequency so that you're more alert, low-frequency so you can sleep. Once again, you need both. The heart rate is supposed to rise and fall depending on the demand you place on it. If you have heart rate flexibility, that's a very, very healthy function in your body. So we are designed to operate in cycles, but we live very linear lives, push, push, push till we drop. It just doesn't make sense.
2: I saw something where you were talking about the idea of a a sort of campaign of take back your lunch. And what I love about that is it's just a tiny change to improve people's lives. Just talk me through the idea of take back your lunch.
1: You know, almost everyone now either eats lunch at their desks, doesn't eat lunch at all. It's just part of the sense that we have to keep going or we'll, we'll fall ever further behind. I don't know that lunch is a, a right that should appear in every important document that's ever written or been written, but it does instinctively seem like we know we have to eat. Eating's not just a form of recovery through glucose, but it's also an opportunity to disconnect and disengage from whatever the activity is you've been doing. And we'd lost that. So we launched the campaign Take Back Your Lunch as a way of ennobling the idea of getting away from your desk for lunch because we know that there's too little renewal for most people going on all day long. Most people understand that they have to eat, so why not do it in a way that actually refuels you as opposed to uh, something that you just barely pay attention to and at your desk. Also, if you eat lunch away from your desk, you get the additional benefit of the fact that you don't get junk in your computer.
2: (laughs) It's for hygiene as much as anything else.
1: There's a hygiene effect, Right. <laughs> what I love about that
2: though, because that is, there are clear permitted rules, aren't there? You're entitled to go and take your lunch. And I think everyone can see a moment where they think, yeah, I could go and take my lunch, eat my sandwich in the park, or I could go for a walk after my lunch. The interesting one though, is that when we were talking previously about the uh, the idea of pulsing, a lot of the control of where you do your work is controlled by your boss, isn't it? And, and there's such a climate of presenteeism that someone will be glaring over if you're not in by 9am. Someone will be scowling if you leave early and pulsing and presenteeism seem to be sort of these, not necessarily polar opposites, but they seem to be in opposition to each other. How would you, in, in the spirit of Take Back Your Lunch, how would you ever advise someone to try and permit their pulsing when they've got a boss that maybe isn't as enlightened?
1: It's been essential to the mission of the Energy Project to ennoble the idea of renewal and recovery. We began to understand the value of recovery as it relates to to performance. Now, not to health, even though it certainly serves health. Most leaders are not making health, the health of their employees, their most important priority, but they sure care about their performance and productivity. And what we learned in the early years of this work, which we did with professional athletes, was that when these athletes broke down, it was because in one form or another, they weren't getting enough recovery, enough renewal, enough refueling. So it turns out that the best athletes intuitively are geniuses at managing what we call periodization, Or work-rest ratios, the balance between spending energy and renewing energy and making both equally important. So in other words, what we saw with these athletes is that they perform best when they were pulsing, which is another way of saying that rest and renewal are a critical component of sustainable high performance. We go into organizations specifically to share the science about this observation, to launch small experiments that feel reasonably safe, even to skeptics, and to demonstrate in you know measurable ways the impact that it has to, in effect, better manage your energy. Now, of course, there are lots and lots, I would say, the overwhelming majority of people, and certainly of mm. managers and leaders, continue to believe that you're better measured by how many hours you work, how continuously. But what we've discovered is even in an organization with a highly unenlightened boss, it is possible to play a role other than victim for all individuals because there are ways you can renew that actually will fall under the radar of even the most overinvolved boss. One great example, Bruce, is the power of understanding how to use your breath. It turns out that you can breathe in to a count of three through your nose and then out to a count of six through your mouth so you're extending the out breath or what might be called the recovery breath and if you do that for one minute and you're skilled at it meaning you can keep your attention on the breath on the counting you can actually clear your bloodstream entirely of cortisol which is the primary stress hormone that ends up interfering with our health and our performance over time we've never heard of an example yet of a boss who passed by someone's desk and started shaking his finger saying, hey, I caught you breathing again. So the point here is that it's not the length of renewal or recovery that's critical, although you know, certainly it's probably better to have some reasonable amount of time to renew. But even in the absence of that, if you're particularly skilled at refueling the tank, it's possible to do that in very short periods of time.
2: It's, it's interesting you, you talk about renewing and putting energy back in the tank. Marissa Meyer said something that antagonised me somewhat, saying that, you know, the secret of success is working 130 hours a week. And you beautifully counter that. You say, uh, there's th- a direct quotation from The Way We're Working Isn't Working, you say, no single behaviour more fundamentally influences our effectiveness in waking life than sleep. And you're a big advocate about getting enough sleep, countering the machismo of, of a no-sleep working life. Do you want to just talk about the impact of sleep and, and what that has on on our body?
1: Once again, the work we do is grounded in the science that underlies it, and most of all in the physiology and the neurochemistry of our bodies. The volume of research about sleep is now overwhelming, enormous. And it is very clear, for example, Based on studies done where they put people into, you know, World War II bunkers with no natural light, no clocks, and tell them to sleep as much as they want, and find that consistently, they sleep at least seven to eight hours out of every 24. Most of it during the night, a little bit of it during the day. But 97 points, I should say 95% of all human beings based on this research require at least seven to eight hours of sleep to be fully rested. And two and a half percent require more than eight hours. I happen to be in that category. Same. That means two and a half percent don't need seven hours of sleep to feel fully rested. Well, that's one out of out of every 97 or 98 people. The vast majority of us sleeping less than seven hours a night, and most of us do, are sleep deprived. The impact of being sleep deprived, again, the research is so incredible. Some of it done with pilots on long haul flights, some of it done with athletes, giving them opportunities to sleep more and then measuring differences in their performance. The evidence is so clear, or doctors uh, working, I should say, residents in Interns working, you know, really long hours and what the negative impact is on their performance of doing that. It's very, very clear that performance breaks down in every way when we don't get enough sleep. And we continue to subscribe, even though this is this knowledge, which was sort of novel when we first began talking about it 15 years ago, now it's quite widely circulated. This understanding, nonetheless, most of us continue to believe that one hour less of sleep gives us one hour additional to get stuff done. And while that's technically true, the quality of the work you will get done in that extra hour is almost surely gonna be lower and often significantly lower. Too little sleep has all kinds of other negative effects on your health. So ultimately, that will come back to haunt an organization from a performance perspective.
2: Just to sort of link a couple of things we talked about there, the simplicity of something like take back your lunch, the fact it's, it's a simple idea that can almost become heuristic. Do you think the secret of changing people's behavior is a series of little steps like that? So, you know, yeah, that's might... a
1: really good question. And the answer is, reluctantly, I will tell you, my answer is yes. That what we've learned over the years, we just did this work for the 12 senior leaders in one of the highest performing companies in the world. And these were smart, sophisticated, self-aware people. And at the end of the two days that we spent with them, when I asked them about their biggest takeaways hoping and expecting that they would be deep and thoughtful. To a person, almost every one of them answered, the actionability of what you've just taught me. You've given me a way. I already knew this stuff. Almost everybody tells us, yeah, I I knew that. But I had no capacity, no ability to put it into practice. And you have broken it down into small pieces and given a framework for putting new behaviors into place that makes it seem possible. Now that's, they're saying to me right after they've gone through the work, we know that it's possible because of course we've been doing it with people for 15 years.
2: I guess one of the things that you you go through is is how people can increasingly structure their work. And in that crazy, hectic world, you've got a clear idea of of the role that leaders are meant to have, it seems. You sort of talk about leaders being chief energy officer. Do you want to just explain what you mean by
1: that? Yeah. So you have the title, if you're the head of the company, uh, usually of uh, chief executive officer, of CEO. But the more fundamental role you play is, indeed, to be a chief energy officer. Because by virtue of your authority, of your position, you have a disproportionate impact on people's energy, on how they feel, for better and for worse. And the the most fundamental job of any leader is to mobilize and focus and inspire and regularly uh, renew the energy of those they lead. Because, you know, once you get past an organization that's three or four people, even the best performer, the CEO who's you know, smarter than everyone and more able to work relentlessly, can't do everything. So the real measure of any CEO's success is going to be the degree to which he or she gets the best out of his or her people, so that 's why a CEO is also a Chief Energy Officer. Energy is contagious.
2: The one thing that strikes me your book feels like if we were if we were designing work today and we were giving people the induction of how they were to manage their energy, ensure that they could work in pulses. it would be like the great the greatest guide i mean of, of all the books i 've read the greatest guide that would set us up for that, but the challenge we 've got is that most people are going into a world where the rules of how day-to-day operates are controlled by the most senior person in the room. Your book's a, a, a great guide. Your your work at the Energy Project is a fantastic guide. And the, the, the secret seems to be we need to try and permeate the existing world of work with these ideas through as many ways as possible. Uh, how do you see the future of that? So you, you, you work with the Energy Project now. H- how do you see looking forward to the rolling out of these more progressive ideas
1: i've watched something really interesting over the last 15 years when we first started going into organizations and talking about the power of renewal talking about uh the idea that uh that that rest could actually serve performance and by the way we've been talking about it in ways that uh, for most people listening are going to feel like they're really about refueling physical energy but as you know, we, we talk about energy in four dimensions. Physical, yes, that's the quantity of your energy, but also emotional, that's the quality of your energy. Mental, that's the focus of your energy. And spiritual, that's the purpose to which you put your energy. And each of those four reservoirs feed into an overall or rise up to an overall feeling that is either serving you well or not serving you well when it comes to performance. But when we first began to try to share those ideas, we could barely get a meeting. And you know, we started with a few Silicon Valley companies because they had younger leaders and they were more willing to experiment. But it was it was tough going. And then the recession, uh, the big recession. Of 2008, nine, maybe even in 2010 happened. And as we came out of that recession and companies had been cut back and people were working, you know, two jobs, but being paid for one. And this exhaustion and overall depletion began to be a visible issue Or we would go, I would then get CEOs and senior leaders who would say to me, yeah, you know, The stuff you're talking about does make sense. I see people in my organization struggling and our business grew and these ideas got more currency in the last six months. And I literally mean this, Bruce, in the last six months, I've seen another sea change in this period of time. I now spend a good percentage of my time talking to CEOs when I do almost invariably now, the CEO will say, yeah, yeah, I mean, our organization's in all kinds of uh, trouble around these issues you're describing. But let me tell you something. I'm in trouble. I'm not OK. I can't do it anymore. And that's actually the most favorable outcome we could have hoped for, because it's it's not good for those individuals, but it's given them uh, a route to empathy and a burning platform. I'm falling apart. Please help me. I got off the phone with the CEO this morning, and it's the third time in the last four or five conversations I've had where we're about to do work for an organization where the CEO has said, I want you to work with me first. And some form of, I'm a terrible role model for what you're talking about right now. So there's no point in trying to bring this to the rest of the organization until I get my own act together. That's heartening. My belief is that change only happens when there is a burning platform, when people feel It's more painful not to change than it is to change. When you get to that moment, then you've really got a shot. And look, this is, to me, the bright side of a world in which there's this frightening, even terrifying move to authoritarianism and fascism among our leaders. The light I continue to hold is that the pain these folks create will be so great that it will fire up the resistance. And it's the same thing when it comes to managing your own life. You can go numb to it. You You can be the proverbial boiling frog in a pot of hot water who doesn't notice. There comes a moment where the pain is so great it's impossible not to notice. We're there. We're in an energy crisis, a really serious energy crisis, and this one is personal it's so fascinating you say that
2: because I definitely get the sense I mean you talk about the last six months something changing I think whether it's the the fact that all of us have been carrying the additional burden of two hours more work a day through having email on our phones or whether it's you know electronic meetings are so that there's no burden to adding an electronic meeting to someone's diary so consequently that our diaries are expanding but you're right something for me does seem to have shifted in the in the last few months and and like you say if the if the conduit is leaders are feeling it and as a result they help their teams then, then that's definitely a good thing so, so do you feel like, looking forwards then do you feel optimistic i guess you're saying
1: there seems to be more recognition can we solve work as soon as you say that i think you know can we solve global warming can hmm. we solve water shortages can we solve the stockpiling of nuclear weapons i honestly do not know the answer I think that the only reasonable perspective to take in the absence of the ability to know and nobody knows is what I call realistic optimism. So realistic optimism is telling the most empowering and hopeful story you can without denying the facts. Whatever the situation is that you find yourself in, what's the best you can possibly make of it? and more important in some sense, who do you want to be in that situation? How do you want to show up? Whether you're a just an individual contributor in an organization, or you are a mid-level manager, or you're the CEO, who do you want to be? Because how we respond to whatever the circumstances we're facing are, that's something, in fact, that may be the only thing in life that no one can ever take away from you. You're free to respond from within, however you choose to. And it takes courage, but it's doable. So do I feel optimistic about being able to tackle work? Yeah, I do, because what's the other choice? In the United States, the Declaration of Independence was signed by a small number of people. The Constitution of the United States, which is a powerful document of democracy, was written by a small number of people and only even a small number of people were aware of it. So it's less the number of people who fall get behind a a good idea that determines its success than it is the influence of the people who do get involved. And so what you're doing right here cuz you don't have to do this. Mm. I mean you have you have a day job that I'm sure takes up more than the number of hours you wish it did. But when people like you and people who see this mobilize together, I think they can have an outsized influence.
2: So looking forward, where do you see the energy project going
1: next? Well, you know, this work started with capacity, which is the fuel in people's tanks, and trying to address a shortage that was not otherwise recognized. Because so long as you have enough capacity, why would you be thinking about your capacity? But then it changed and demand began to exceed people's ability to meet it. And suddenly there was a capacity problem, an energy problem. And when we, you know, got to understand it, the counterintuitive insight that I've already talked about was that it's work when it's overused becomes a lie. hard work, which is a virtue in most cultures when it's overused becomes a liability. It's overwork and eventually it's burnout and that the balancing opposite or the balancing virtue when it comes to work is rest. Our insight was that the movement between work and rest is better than work by itself. So the work we're now doing with organizations starts with helping them to get this core fundamental pair of opposites better balanced work and rest. But it now moves into helping organizations find that dynamic balance between a whole series of qualities that are influencing their effectiveness in the world. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Thank you so
2: much for your time. I spared you the Donald Trump question. I'm tired of talking about Trump. Absolutely.
0: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Ever since I recorded that a few weeks ago, I've been consciously trying to take a break at lunchtime myself. I don't mean sort of navigating the sandwich meal deals in boots, but more trying to think of things to do. Uh, to get away from my desk, to sort of punctuate my work with mixed results. Um, I mean, having the break is always amazing. But thanks to electronic diaries and eager colleagues, it's sometimes harder to achieve. Anyway, I would recommend you do it. Take back your lunch. uh, Tell me how you get on. I'm particularly fascinated to hear people who've uh, achieved those punctuations in their work. Next week's episode, and it is next week, is that special on changing your career. And the following week's episode is a special on hacking your job. Still interested if you've got anything you want to contribute to that. I've still got space to add a few other things. Please do tweet me and subscribe on the Apple Podcast Store. Really appreciate you listening. Thank you.